0: Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where
1: we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. Brianne Day is a winemaker in Oregon with a deep cultural connection to her Northwest home. It's through her wines that she tells the story of this culture. I met with Day to taste her wines and to explore her creative approach to winemaking.
0: This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Foodateur.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Foodadur.com.
1: With me today is winemaker of Day Wines, Brianne Day. Welcome to the show. Thank you.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Tell me about your upbringing. How did you get involved in wine?
0: Um, I got interested in wine as a teenager through traveling I was in Northern Italy the first time that I really tasted wine from that was worth tasting. And uh, I was really interested in the cultural connection between wine and, and specifically the places that it was from, how each little village in Italy had this specific grape that they grew and that that was the, the wine that they'd always made there. And I thought that was really fascinating coming from a completely different culture, um, one of like suburban America, where we didn't have anything like that whatsoever. I thought it was really interesting um, the the cultural connection, and so I was really curious about that. In every town I'd go to, I'd pick up bottles of wine, and um, over the next couple of years, in my early twenties, that was something that I, I kept coming back to was just seeing uh, the the world through through the wines that they made in in the individual place. So. Um, in my mid-twenties, I traveled around the world for a couple of years to try to investigate that more closely and, and see about what part of wine that I wanted to be a part of. And so I worked on vineyards and talked to winemakers and talked to Psalms and tasted a lot of wines. And through that journey, I, I came to want to be a winemaker and I came became very interested in specifically wines that were made in a more natural way. And that just happened because every time a wine really spoke to me um, and I really liked it, I would ask the winemaker, well, how was this made? How was it grown? And the same things kept coming up over and over again. Like it was grown, you know, using biodynamic farming, it was grow. it was made with um, indigenous yeast and those things, to be just the things that kept coming up over and over in the wines that i was really moved by and so when i came home i decided to make wine and do it in that way
1: you know some people will go and they'll do you know they're interested in wine they do one harvest in burgundy they get through it and they're making wines right you could kind of take a little broader approach to it you know you traveled around a lot are some of the places you went and how did going to these different places affect your winemaking?
0: Um, well, I did take a broad approach on it because i I knew that I wanted to have my own winery and I wanted it to be successful um, and part of part of having a winery is knowing how to make wine and part of its knowing how to market it and know how to sell it and so I wanted to take a really broad view of it so in terms of learning how to make wine I worked and traveled around New Zealand, and that was because of the Pinot Noir connection. There are a lot of Pinot Noir producers in New Zealand as well as in Oregon, and um, working down there allowed me to do two harvests a year, one in Oregon and one in New Zealand, and it was just a really easy way to do it because there's a total travel path between Oregon and New Zealand for for that reason. Um, I worked in Burgundy for a harvest in Volnay. And I worked in Argentina just because when I was traveling, I liked Argentina and the wines are are really um, different than Pinot Noir from Oregon. But I found, and I didn't realize that this was gonna be helpful, um, I found that a lot of the other varieties that I made in Argentina have come into handy with fruit that I'm getting from Southern Oregon. So that's actually been useful and I didn't realize it was gonna be at the time. Um, But I also worked in other aspects of the industry to try to get um, some sales experience. I worked in restaurants and buying for restaurants and selling barrels and working in retail. So a lot of different ways to try to get a, a broader view of um, not just how to make it, but how to sell it.
1: So you've got all this global experience, and with all that experience, you could have gone anywhere to make wine. What took you to Oregon?
0: Well, that's that kind of ties back to the first thing we were talking about with the cultural connection, and so my cultural connection is the Northwest, that's where my family's from, that's where I was born and raised, and it felt more genuine to make wine in a place that I know really well, and it felt like I would be able to more accurately describe a place through wine, through a grape, if it's a place that I know really well, than if I just randomly decide, well, I really like I don't know. I really like Sicily. So I'm going to go to Sicily and make wine. And I might really like Sicily, but I don't think that I necessarily understand the culture there. I feel that that's a really important part for me of making wine is making it of a place that I understand well. And since I'm from the Northwest, that's that's the place that, you know, that you, it is.
1: You started in Italy, and there, there are those deep cultural connections, whether you're in Piedmont or Sicily or wherever. I mean, just really important cultural connections. In the US, we don't have those centuries of winemaking behind us, and it's a little more free form, you get to do what you want. But what do you think are those cultural connections that come with Oregon and its wines?
0: Well, for me, the culture of the Northwest. It was important to be in in nature a lot is what I'm trying to i trying to say. So growing up, I spent a lot of time playing in the woods. My grandma always had a garden, and we'd always be, you know, getting produce from the garden, going and picking blackberries and picking picking fruit all summer long and things like that. So um, I guess my cultural connection is more about the land. Itself and the and nature itself and yeah we don't really have the uh, that's not true we do have a lot of cultural things that are in the northwest that um, can be described in some ways through wine whether that's the music that scene that popped up when I was a kid in Seattle in the nineties and in an Olympia where, where I was raised, or if it's the food that we get from the Northwest, both in terms of the wild forage things and the um, stuff that we, that we grow up there, it's, it, I think it definitely does have a specific culture that's different from other places. And that's something that I hope that my wines reflect is both the um, spending time in nature and, and food and music and all the things that, that make it what it is.
1: Sure. So let's talk a little bit about your wines. Your first vintage was 2012, right? Yes. And how much wine did you make? What did you make? How did you get the fruit? Tell me about that.
0: I made 125 cases, which was two tons of fruit from a vineyard called Crowley Station Vineyards in the in the Eola Amity Hills. I got that because I was friends with the son of the vineyard grower, and they came to me and said, "We would really like to have some people making." our wine uh, from our vineyard as a single vineyard wine and they were a small grower and didn't have a real reputation for their vineyard yet, so people were buying the fruit, but they were putting it into a Willamette Valley blend or something like that, and, and they felt that their fruit was better than that and they really wanted somebody to explore that. And since I was a newbie, um, I, I felt like taking a chance on another newbie and kind of growing together.
1: Were there any challenges? I mean, where'd you make the wine? Here you all of a sudden, ooh, here's two tons of fruit, go.
0: Uh, well, I was working for um, a winemaker named John Groshaw. I was working in his cellar with him. It was in McMinnville, and John was renting space from Marcus Goodfellow at Metello. And I was friends with a lot of the other winemakers in the little area of downtown McMinnville, so a friend of mine named Di Crisp, who is a longtime grower, um, he had space across across the way, and so Di rented me space in his winery, and so I'd be working for John and just walk across the parking lot and go do my punch downs at, at my space and come back
1: over. So you made this first vintage, you know, 125 cases and sort of borrowed space. But you had a plan to expand. Tell mm-hmm. me about that and where we're at today.
0: Oh, sure. Um, well, sometimes when I daydream up um, a plan, I I kind of like see it in its entirety really um, quickly, and then I stick to that daydream that that thing that I thought up. And so when I first decided that I wanted to have a winery, my plan that I thought up was um, that I wanted to grow to be about three or 4,000 cases, that I wanted to have a pretty large facility that I could rent space to other winemakers in, especially other younger and smaller, not younger necessarily, but newer um, winemakers who were also exploring things from a more, a a less intrusive kind of winemaking standpoint. Um, And basically that's where it is today. And so um, the way- How'd you get there? It's it's a a surprising, surprising way. I thought that I would just work lots and lots of jobs to pay for everything. And so after I made my first vintage in 2012, I was working four other jobs. Um, And so I was waiting tables. I was managing a wine program at a restaurant. I was working one day a week at a retail shop and I was working for John in his cellar.
1: And not sleeping at all.
0: Not much. Um, Yeah, not much. And so during one of those jobs, uh, waiting tables, I waited on some folks from Traverse City, Michigan, who have a second home in Portland. And they saw the big grapevine tattoo that I have on my arm and started asking me questions about it. And um, every time I'd come back to their table through the through their dinner, they'd ask me more questions and they'd get more and more business specific. And by the end of their dinner, um, Richard, the gentleman, said, I'm going to back you. And I I took that with a
1: grain of salt. (laughs) Sure, it's someone at (laughs) dinner with a little wine in them.
0: Exactly, exactly. Um, But their friend said, take this guy seriously because he means it when he says stuff like that. So I arranged to have lunch with them a couple days later, and I had written a business plan and a budget, and it was like for exactly what what we have right now, um, and presented that to them, and I decided to kind of present the bigger version of the story to them to see if it would scare them off, and it didn't, they just were right there with me, like, yeah, cool, let's do it, let's do it. So I grew, in 13 I, I took on th- three additional wines, two additional vineyards, grew to 450 cases. And then in 14 and and in in 13, I was able to get more distribution um, in New York in addition to Chicago. So in 14, I took another big step and I grew to about 2,700 cases. And then Richard said to me over the uh, winter in 2015, he said okay you've grown the brand now next step is we got to find a building and when somebody says something that like that to you you just hustle <laughs> you just make it happen um because i don't know you don't know how long an offer like that's gonna last i guess um so i i found a building in the heart of wine country in oregon that was uh, formerly a vitamin production facility it's a big kind of warehousey building that's on two acres in Dundee. And last summer I remodeled about 4,500 square feet of it into production area. And we made our wine in there last year, me and six other winemakers. And then this year, this summer, I've been remodeling the barrel room and building a tasting room. And so the barrel room should be finished pretty much today. (laughs) Hopefully by the time I get home from this trip. And then the uh, tasting room is supposed to be done by November. It's been, um, and then this year I'll make 4,000 cases of wine, and I have nine other clients in the winery that are also making about 4,000 combined. Um, so we'll do about 200 tons altogether wow. in, the, in the building this year.
1: That's pretty astronomical growth in four years to go from 125 cases to 4,000. Was that part of the plan to grow that
0: quickly? No, that was not part of the plan. Uh, I have a hard time controlling myself around harvest time. Is honestly the is like really the honest answer. Um, I get really excited, and I it's harvest comes once a year, and it makes me feel like internal pressure to to um, make more and to make more varieties, and like the creativity of winemaking is part of the most fun aspect for for me. And so um, it's a little bit of, um, I have a little bit of mania around harvest time where I'll hear about a certain grape variety and then this idea occurs to me like, I should make it pet nat, I should make it skin contact, I should make it carbonic, whatever it is. And I get really like curious and excited and I I just say yes.
1: So that kind of daydreaming (laughs) you had about, building the business and building your facility and seeing where it's going to go applies to your wines as well yeah. huh sure
0: yeah I, I get i get really excitable and then um afterwards i have to decide how it is that i'm actually going to sell it <laughs> and then find a new market and whatever so this past year since i had made a bunch of wine in 14 i um between january and march i opened 10 new markets so i, I i've got distribution in a lot of states now, um, a lot more than I had, and in a few countries. And
1: It's going to make it harder uh, for us to get your wine.
0: Uh, I'll just have to make more. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so let's talk about your wine. Okay. Um, and you're making Pinot Noir, obviously, mm-hmm. and you've got the two Nats, You've got Mamacita and Papacito.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Anything else you're making?
0: Yes. Uh, well, I'm making 18 wines this year. Um, so step
1: up from last year,
0: (laughs) I made 11 last year. Yeah. Um, so I'm making, um, four single vineyard pinots and I choose those sites because I feel that they're all really, um, different from each other. I don't want to make pinots that taste the same as each other because then they're competing in the marketplace with themselves within the, within the brand. And that seems kind of pointless to me. So they're, um, distinct sites, in my opinion. From one of the sites, which is Momtazi Vineyard, I'm going to make a a field blend of Pinot Noir, Pinot Gris, and Pinot Blanc as a red (laughs) wine, because I'm curious about that. I like wines from Italy that have red wines that have a lot of stone fruit characteristics to them, like a or Frappato. And I was thinking about what wines, what grape varieties in Oregon could possibly create a stone fruity type of red wine and my head just went back to the Pinot family so that seemed like a I don't know
1: it yeah, definitely a, when you get that Pinot Blanc and Pinot gris you get those stone fruit characters right. in there and
0: exactly so that's one wine that I'm doing so that's five um, I'm gonna make um, a blend of uh, Pinot gris Pinot Blanc Riesling Mueller Turgau muscat um, as a um, glass-poor-pricing white that's going to hopefully be crisp and youthful drinking and um, aromatic. Um, I also make a Pinot Noir that's I'm carbonic-focused. Last year I made it entirely carbonic maceration, and this year I might change a little bit about how I make it, but it's Pinot Noir from several vineyards in the Willamette Valley. Why do you
1: go carbonic with it?
0: Uh, Well, one, because um, I've never made a wine like that before, and I wanted to see what that was like. Um, The second reason was I was trying to get it at a price that, make it at a price point that could be glass-pour in my other markets, like in Chicago and in New York, Um, and making it in stainless steel and being able to turn it around quickly, which Carbonic maceration—you can get it into bottle a lot quicker than if you put it into barrel. Um, that helped me to keep the price lower, so it was kind of a, a dual purpose. Okay. Uh, I make from—I'm going to be making for keg wine only a Viognier from the Willamette Valley. I'm going to make a skin contact Viognier, Pinot Gris, and Muscat. Ooh,
1: that sounds geeky.
0: Yep. <laughs> yep. That's that's going to be a geeky one. Um, from Southern Oregon. I make a Syrah Viognier that's a pretty high percentage of Viognier, um, anywhere 15 to 20%. Ooh. I think I'll be doing 15% this year. Um, I make a field blend of Cabernet Franc, Tanat, and Malbec. Um, I make a straight Tannot. I make a Marsan Roussan Grenache Blanc. And last year, I de-stimmed the Marsan component and had skin contact on it, and then blended it back in in barrel with the um, other two, which were direct to press. And I make the Pet Nat of Malvasia Bianca, Pet Nat of Primitivo. I make a Rosé of Tanat and Malbec. And I think that's it. Was that 18?
1: <laughs> <laughs> <Darn close. laughs> oh
0: no, one more. I'm making for keg wine only um, a Grenache Noir, Grenache Blanc, Co-Ferment.
1: So you got 18 wines, you're making about 4,000 cases a year, so it's, you're not making a lot of any one thing, are you?
0: No, the most, um, I make the most of the Pinots, the Syrah, and the Cab Franc blend. Those are the biggest quantities, and those will all be right around uh, 2 to 350 cases each. Um, The other ones, some of them are very small quantities, like, 75 cases or so.
1: You were talking about how you're influenced by natural wines, but you're not a natural winemaker specifically, are you? I mean, I know you do spontaneous fermentation, but you use sulfur, right?
0: I guess it depends on your definition of what a natural winemaker is. What's your definition of natural wine? What's your wine definition?
1: <laughs> My definition is not important. What's your definition?
0: Um, there isn't a consensus as to what natural wine is. And in fact, most winemakers that I know don't use that term very much. I think it's a term that um, has come into play more strongly as sommeliers and the media are trying to describe what it is that they're seeing. Um, And it's, it's easy to get your head around the word natural because it's something that we use a lot to describe other food products. So there are people that are making natural wine and would do it with absolutely no um, chemical intervention at all. And in some of my wines, that's the case. In my pet gnats, that's the case. I don't have any sulfur in those wines. But I think the consensus for natural wine, does, based on uh events like raw fare and the big glue and some of those things it doesn't preclude that the wines should have at, like no sulfur in them and in my wines i use sulfur prior to bottling so i don't use any at the crush pad um, i like to to substitute the um, protective nature of sulfur with co2 so i We'll bring the fruit in, cover it with frozen CO2 and seal it up until the natural, the native. And when I say native fermentation, even, I don't sit and analyze what yeast is operating Once in going, my Once it's going, it's going. It's going, that makes me happy. I know I didn't stick any in. Right. Like that's, that's basically what the, uh, my my thought process to that is that um, when one inoculates with yeast there, they're putting in a really large population of one strain, which to me homogenizes the flavor of the wine and makes it um, less interesting. So if some of my yeast cells are from the vineyard and some of them are from my hanging out on my fermenters or hanging out on my barrels or from some other place, I know that it's got, my wine has a lot of variety of yeast in it. And that is what, is making uh, the complexities. So I'm not that concerned about identifying exactly what
1: that is. Now what about other winemakers in your facility? Are any of them inoculating? Yeah, some of them are. So that sort of puts into the blend too then, huh?
0: Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So anyhow, um, based on whatever a person's definition of natural wine is, I I don't, I don't really want to say whether or not I am, because it's, I, whatever. Um, I, I, <laughs> I don't sulfur the wines at uh, at the crush pad. I don't inoculate them with yeast. I don't use any enzymes or water or shap- chaptalization. Chapitaliz- I can't even say the freaking word. <laughs> um, yeah, I have uh, I have added acid to wines before. It's not something that I do on a, on a prophylactic basis. I don't do anything on a prophylactic basis. Um, I've never filtered. I don't use... Um, I don't use very much new wood that's how i make wine
1: great (laughs) have you had a favorite vintage or favorite wine or some kind of story about one of your favorite wines or favorite vintages that you've worked with sure
0: um well 2014 was a year that i grew a lot um and it was a really challenging year like on a personal level um and so like i didn't like the place where i was making wine and i had a horrible boyfriend at the time and so it was like making wine that year felt like a really um, like my happy place and the uh, Tinsilla vineyard Pinot Noir more than any of the others just had all these um, aromatics during fermentation that set off triggered like happy points in my brain and so every time I still smell that wine it, it just reminds me of feeling like calm and peaceful in the middle of <laughs> a terrible you know storm you said of life right life, <laughs> life storm um, and uh, I, that wine has a, I have a soft spot in my heart for that wine because of that reason some of the other wines, they personality-wise, they just kind of crack me up. I, my Papacito, um, I made that kind of on a, a bit of a whim and a bit of a dare um, because uh, at the beginning of harvest last year, um, a friend of mine named Ross was out working harvest from Philadelphia and he's a sommelier in Philly. In Philly. And we were drinking Lambrusco and I was saying, oh man, I always wanted to make red wine as a sparkling, like that sounds really fun. And he's like, Brie, you're already making 10 wines, you're not gonna make an 11th. And I heard it as a challenge. <laughs> um, and so I kind of was keeping my eyes open for the appropriate fruit for that wine. And my grower Herb Quadi in Southern Oregon told me about this vineyard that had some extra Primitivo and I thought that would be the appropriate wine for this. Um, and so I I made it as a a red wine, and then instead of putting it in a barrel, I put it into stainless steel and chilled it down to try to slow down the fermentation process so that I'd have enough sugar to make it pet-nat. I bottled it, and I didn't think about how much tannin and um, color interact with CO2 and the explosive nature that that could create, Uh, so The first few sample bottles that I opened, some of them in very public places- uh, Exploded. Were volcanic in nature. I exploded a bottle of Papacito all over 10 Bells in New York because I sent out a couple sample bottles and we were like, hey, we're gonna open it. And it was just like volcanic, it was was volcanic. Um, So that wine took a, a bit more effort to get to a final product. We had to disgorge it. We had to soak off labels that I had prematurely put on and then they got destroyed through the, uh, uh, through the, um, disgorging process. And so it took a lot of work. Um, but that wine had a lot of personality and I had to just kind of like laugh at it because otherwise I would just go around being frustrated all the time. Like I know I I maybe broke even on that wine. (laughs)
1: Well, I was able to (laughs) score a couple bottles of that and none of them exploded. Good.
0: We shouldn't they shouldn't at
1: this No, point. no, they were good. They were, they, were out, they were really great, fun to drink, very Lambrusco like Oh, good. Yeah, it was it was really cool wine. So cool, thank you. So I kind of do that. I uh, wish there was more of it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. I'll make a little bit more this year. And last year, as I was finishing up making it, I was like, this was a waste of time. Like, But people really respond to it, and seemed, it seems to bring a lot of, of, of joy to the drinkers, Um and so I'm not just making it this year, I'm doubling production on it.
1: Wow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which isn't much. I mean, I made like 75 cases last year. I'll make 150 this year. But so. you learned a
1: lot last year from it.
0: I learned a lot last year from it, yes. And I'm accepting the fact that I'm going to lose some through disgorging, and that's okay. So
1: yeah, yeah that's how it goes. So let's take some wine. What do we got?
0: Um, I have We have two Pinot Noirs and a blend from the Applegate Valley. So I chose the two Pinots because I wanted to demonstrate um, what I meant when I said that I like to make single vineyard Pinots that are very different from each other and that there's not um, an overlap in style or not creating a competition for themselves um, in the marketplace. So that's why I chose those two. And then the Running Bear from the Applegate Valley because I think that the Applegate Valley is a really unique um, place for growing wine. And it's very much, uh, when I was talking about the um, cultural component of Oregon, I feel like the Applegate Valley transmits that information really well. When I taste those wines, um, the ones that I make from the Applegate, I think they taste like Oregon. And so sometimes you know you hear winemakers say that the, a wine is Burgundian or whatever. I, I really firmly believe that only a Burgundy wine is Burgundian. Well, <laughs> someone from
1: Burgundy is going to say, "What do you mean Burgundian? Are we talking about Volnay or Pomard Sure. You know, but certainly just, oh, that means nothing to someone from Burgundy.
0: Right. Right. True. That's true. But it certainly doesn't <laughs> it doesn't include Oregon. Um, no. So I, I think that. Uh, that wine um, tastes like Oregon. And so I really uh, I wanted you to, to try it for that reason. Cool, where are we gonna start? We're gonna start with this guy, Kinsella Vineyard. So this is my northernmost vineyard that I work with. It's in the um, northwestern corner of the Willamette Valley, just north of the Yamhill-Carlton AVA. And it's uh, kind of bumps up against where the Coast Range foothills come into the Willamette Valley. So it's heavily wooded. It's uh, the rainiest site that I work with and not not planted to vines for the most part. There's mostly Christmas tree farms all around there. So this is a certified organic site. And, um, this is the wine that I was talking about. This is your
1: happy place <laughs> this wine. This is my
0: happy place of wine. <laughs> you know, you know. <clears throat> it's really
1: pretty delicate color. Wow, strawberry, huh?
0: Yeah. Um, the longer that it's been in in bottle, I feel like the darker the the fruitiness has become to it. Uh, yesterday I was tasting it and I felt that it had a lot more blue fruit notes than I'd noticed in the past. Like. Um, like huckleberry, blueberry, like that kind of thing.
1: We've decanted this a little bit, so we've got a little air in it.
0: Mm-hmm. And then I like the way the um, stems at this site smell and taste and everything. So you'll notice some spicy notes to it that are maybe in the vein of um, cinnamon or black pepper, and that's because I added stems back to the fermenters um, at the crush pad.
1: hmm I see what you mean about uh, that blue fruit coming through. Yeah, a little spicy finish. Now, you say you don't use a lot of new wood. Is there any new wood on this?
0: There um, is a little bit of new wood on this. This is the highest percentage of any of my pinots. It's 15%. Okay. Yeah. So all I, French, I'm assuming. Yeah, all French. Um, I use um, pretty much all French oak in the cellar. The majority of the wines uh, of the barrels are old, like over over five uses. Um, I did buy this year. I've got two um, Russian oak puncheons coming in. So oversized, they're double sized barrels, mm-hmm. and they're Russian wood. And I'm going to experiment with those in. Um, the Tanat and the Cab Franc, and I'm not gonna. I think um, Pinot really shows off wood, and it's kind of risky to experiment with that much Pinot in, in a in a Russian sure. oak puncheon. But since there's absolutely no benchmark for uh, Oregon Tanat, <laughs> I can, can kind of do whatever <laughs> you, can do whatever whatever you want. want. I can do whatever I want.
1: <laughs> You'll set the benchmark. Well, well, this uh, wine is really pretty.
0: Thank you. I, I still smell the things that I smelled in the fermenter which were the floral parts of it like jasmine and violets and um, sometimes just a little bit of a citrus component.
1: I was just thinking like orange rind.
0: Yeah. Yeah and uh, I, I like that because I think they're kind of atypical things to experience in Pinot Noir and it seems to be very specific to this particular site and um, I like that about it.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, so what do we have here?
0: This is Crowley Station Vineyards. All marine sediment soils here. So the other vineyard that we just tasted, Kansila Vineyard is all uh, volcanic loam. Has a Kansila has a huge amount of water holding capacity in the soil. Crowley Station has like no water holding capacity in the soil. Um, so they're very different in terms of those two things. Um, this is a slightly lower elevation site and um, like I said, marine sediment. So there are crumbling um, seashells all throughout in the vineyard. And I think that that comes through a lot in the wine.
1: Okay. A little, uh, a little dustier, this wine. Mm-hmm. A little more serious color. A little bit of, you see a little, I'm starting to get a little kind of cool, almost not brown, but tan around the uh, very outside of the edge. A mm-hmm. um, little oxidation, which is not a bad thing at all. Yeah, quite a bit different, huh? Mhm.
0: Yeah, I think what's interesting about this one is how savory yeah. it is. Um it definitely goes more toward um, the like umami side for me. And I notice a lot of salinity in the finish on the wine that I think is a direct result of the, the soil. Of the soil. Mm-hmm.
1: I just want to drink that. <laughs> <laughs> but still they're kinda of, it's still Pinot Noir. It's not we're not fooling anybody here with what it is. It's a good yeah. classic example of Pinot Noir, yep. uh, Oregon Pinot Noir particularly. Well, what's what's this? What do we got here?
0: That is um, a blend of Cabernet Franc, Tanat, and Malbec from the Applegate Valley. Um, so, Southern Oregon, just about twenty miles from the border with California. Now
1: you used a word that last year you didn't use. What Malbec? Yeah, last yeah. year you didn't call it that.
0: Well, on the back, it has the word you're thinking of, which is Co. Um, it's not necessarily a, a name that a lot of people know what it means, and I specifically used it on the label because I don't think that this wine has a lot in common with what people associate with Malbec, which- the
1: it, Kind it, of super round, juicy fruit.
0: Exactly, and so if if somebody reads that and they know what I'm talking about, then I think that their association is gonna to go toward Mataron or to, toward France somewhere, and if somebody doesn't know what it is, then all they have to do is ask their handy wine steward <laughs> wherever, cool. and then they've learned something new. So, Great. you know, so this is all, these are all mm. grown together, fermented together.
1: It's um, all co-fermented, huh? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's got a good fruitiness, but there's a nice spiciness to it too.
0: I, I use I like to use whole cluster. Actually, all the wines that we tasted have stem in some way. Um, this one was about 25% whole cluster. Well,
1: oh, it's bigger wine. Well, obviously, I mean, it's not Pinot Noir. A little more reaches out and grabs you, doesn't it?
0: Mm-hmm. 13% on it. Oh, good. Um, but the, I think the tannin itself does give a lot of uh, grip.
1: Now, you said something earlier about this wine. You said this is Oregon. Mm-hmm. What, what, what about this wine makes it Oregon?
0: This wine, to me, is a lot more feral in nature than um, some of the pinots, um, I think that it's got more of a, a woodsy, um, evergreen kind of component to it where it, it, to me on the palate and in the nose that I get a lot of, uh, like kind of dry summer evergreen forest. Um, so in that way, it actually specifically reminds me of Southern Oregon. I think it's just a, it's just a little bit less, um, Predictable because it is a blend that's not typical for the Northwest. So when you go into it and you taste it, it's, it's not... Um, you don't really have any anticipation of what it is that you're going to be experiencing. Um, and I think that that kind of uh, freedom from convention is something that is, is American in, in nature. And since my American experience centers around the Northwest, it, to me, it's northwest in nature because of having the uh, the the lack of tradition with it.
1: And these wines are all. What's the price point around for retail price on these? About? Um, they're
0: all between forty and fifty dollars. The uh, Running Bear, I believe, is forty retail, and I think the Pinots are are forty-five to fifty. Somewhere all right,
1: so it. all in the forty to fifty dollar range, depending on where you're buying it. Um, they're not the easiest wines to find, but you can with a little bit of searching find it. I know I've seen them in a couple of shops recently in the Chicago area, cool. so they're they're out there. Yeah, um, not only on restaurant wine lists, but they're there as well. Yeah. Well, they're delicious wines. Um, they're they're they're. I think they're wines that are representative of that vision you talked about earlier, that they're they're expressive of the places that they're from. I mean, the, the Pinots clearly are unique from one another. It's not like the same Pinot grown in two different sites, which, you know, sometimes you get a little bit of that. Brienne Day of uh, Day Wines. Thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to meet you and Taste Your Wines.
0: Yeah, pleasure for me as well. Thank you. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestporepod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Poor with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Poor with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Poor. This has been The Honest Poor with John Lennart.